right, everybody. We had a full editorial calendar, but it's now been rendered moot pretty much by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So Bill and I decided to launch the alert live stream here. And uh, we've got a great guest. As always, if you have a question, jump in the chat and our producer, Heather, will tee up the, the good ones. We're also gonna have some links to some of Michael's stuff that has he's posted, he's done on this subject in recent years in proceedings. Uh, so Bill, uh, without any ado, let's, let's get right to our, our guest. Yeah, quick introduction, uh, joining us today, and thank you for your time, Michael. Uh, our guest is Michael Kaufman. He serves as a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at CNA, and as a fellow at the Kennan Institute, the Woodrow Wilson International Center in Washington, D.C., and uh, Michael is also a uh, frequent contributor to proceedings. He's written a lot about the Russian military, particularly the Russian Navy, uh, a series of articles in 2017, 2018, and something more recent in uh, 2020. So, Michael, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, thanks for joining us. And I know you you were born uh, and, and spent the early years of your life in what was what is now the, the Ukraine. At that time, it was the uh, Ukrainian SSR. Do you still have family there? And, and how are they doing? I don't have family there anymore. We've all left over the years. But yeah, that 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 is very much true. My family and I are from Ukraine, primarily from the capital. Well, Michael, so far, you know, this doesn't appear to be going well for uh, for Vladimir Putin and the Russian forces. Uh, it's it's pretty deadly on the on the ground over there in Ukraine, but perhaps not as bad as some had predicted uh, for the Ukrainians. What what so far has surprised you the most, both? tactically and strategically? Well, I think uh, the scope of the operations, what people predict, and the maximalist political aims are too, right? The pursuit of regime change and trying to isolate Ukrainian forces and pincer movements. The thing is that the, the actual concept of the operations they pursued it, it, is uh, absolutely bizarre. And I think it stunned a lot of people because it's completely unworkable. And it was really premised on uh, were principally uh, political assumptions, but political assumptions that bore very low resemblance to reality. What essentially happened in the first couple of days is the Russian leadership really believed that they could rapidly deploy forces outside of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and then introduce them and get Zelensky, his administration, to surrender. And rather than using the bulk of their military power or forces, you know, most of us expected a uh, strike campaign, a brief air campaign using the hundreds of fixed wing aviation combat helicopters Russia had built up and then leveraging fires for a combined arms maneuver offensive. What instead has happened is they've done none of that. They did a limited strike campaign in the first hours. Uh, someone tried to suppress Ukrainian air defense and command and control, have not pushed aviation forward at all. Uh, some a few attack aircraft, but in some combat helicopters, but very limited. They attempted an, uh, an air assault on an airfield outside of uh, Kiev at the very opening hours, hoping to capture it, I think, and then to really quickly try to bring an airborne, but it wasn't very successful. I mean, they were able to, to drop the air units, they just weren't able to hold on to it. And then they just pushed small numbers of units rapidly down roads and junctions uh, into Ukraine to try to um take control of sectors but to avoid real engagements with ukrainian forces and to also avoid the major cities which is very very surprising i think to a lot of people who watch this effort it may look very bizarre and so a lot of the operations seems to have sort of you know i, I joke that 
the ghost of Pavel Grachev might have, might have put this operation together. You know, he's he's got his infamous quote in the um, in, in this meeting with Yeltsin, where he sort of cavalierly uh, claimed that a Russian airborne regiment could take Grozny in two hours, right? And of course, um, uh, that wasn't the, the entirety of his thoughts. But the long story short is that they really believed that they wouldn't have to face substantial resistance from the Ukrainian military. Or there wouldn't be that such a heavy lift to try to get forces quickly into, you know, one of the larger cities in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, it was a gross miscalculation. I think they did because they also wanted to keep the war hidden from their own public. And they thought if they did it this way and they could rapidly achieve success, then a lot of Western support wouldn't coalesce into, into a spate of sanctions against Russia. And the first couple of days, they've ended up in the worst of all worlds, just to be clear, where they've ended up as the guy bloody knows um they have sustained casualties and loss of manpower equipment they are obviously not they got to the capital very fast but they're not they're not there i don't understand you know how they how they anybody thought that in a matter of days they could take a city that size uh and they got all the worst sanctions that they anticipated so now you see major adjustments in the russian military <laughs> no this is the beginning i see way too much euphoria as well i'm gonna balance that narrative uh, I don't know who expected Russia to conquer the Europe's largest country in four days. Uh, I certainly didn't. Maybe maybe analysts in Moscow did. But we need to balance that narrative with the reality that they have advanced substantially into Ukraine, even with this modicum of effort. They've stopped now and have made real adjustments to fix a lot of logistics and supply problems they have and to reorganize this effort. And we're going to see far more artillery and firepower now being used and probably air power eventually come in. So let's let's drop anchor on that you framed it really deftly and i think all of us are concerned about how putin and the russian military is going to up the ante um we've heard rumors of thermobaric weapons being used in recent days and other sort of wmd conventional wmd kind of stuff uh what's in his arsenal what do you think you mentioned artillery and other things like that some people are saying these convoys are just stalled. It's not a convoy at all. It's just a traffic jam because the logistics is so bad. But to your point, we got to watch this ebullience and this euphoria uh, when Putin's got another gear he can shift into here. Yeah. So, okay. First, you know, outside of shelling uh, cities like uh, Kharkiv. You've not seen Russian units deployed with much of their artillery supporting fires, and they've used this sporadically here and there, but not substantially. They have an immense amount of artillery they've dragged to the fight, MLRS systems, cluster munitions, what have you. And you've basically seen Russian air power sitting on the sidelines, right? I think they basically thought that air defense could handle Ukraine's air force, and they could disable most things with uh, nightly precision strikes, and then, and then do battle damage assessment to follow up and do more strikes. The um, the units in the north are just operating not as combined arms maneuver battalion tactical groups, but actually just pushing small detachments forward to capture roads and junctions, which is why they're completely outstripping any supply and, and support and getting ambushed and getting counterattacked. And they, they basically not operating at all the way they train and organize. In the south, they've been very, much more successful. They have substantial breakouts uh, from Crimea. Uh, but they are still, there's only a few battalion tactical groups even operating down there in, in terms of the military power they've thrown out. So it's important for folks to understand 
that a lot of the military power they deployed is now in Ukraine in terms of on Ukrainian territory, but very little of it's actually been committed to this fight so far. That's why I'm that's why it's my job as an analyst to kind of throw pessimism onto early days of optimism that I've seen in the in the last couple of days, because most of Russian military power and capabilities, the things we I think we expected to see originally, electronic warfare being used, um, off of cyber capabilities, it, it, all that all those things just haven't been employed yet. And then we can, we're debating why. I think we're debating reasons why they might not be using them. But nonetheless, there's a lot of things that people expected that just haven't been used by Russia at all. And, and just to be clear, the organization of this effort from logistics communication point per, perspective is absolutely shambolic. And it's very clear that most Russian units didn't know they were going to be sent into this war until very, very late in the game when they got their orders. Right. And when they were deployed to the border and I think a lot of them were shocked. And I think and I think many units are probably a fairly low morale. And when I see some of the equipment being abandoned, I suspect that a lot of Russian forces definitely have morale issues. Not to say they're not fighting and that they won't fight. But I, I think that actually the Russian Russian military leadership kept the plan to launch this kind of invasion quite secret from the forces. And that explains some of the organization issues. So, Michael, do you have a sense that uh, the Russians just haven't taken the gloves off yet uh, or they they were just uh, disorganized and, and kind of went at this expecting that the Ukraine would fall much quicker and easier, uh, that there wouldn't be much in the way of uh, you know opposition to them? What, what, what's your sense? And, and if they haven't taken the gloves off yet, what? When will they and what do you, what do you think will, will, will come next? What's the, what's the first big punch that might come? Yeah, first couple of days, definitely. Uh, they definitely thought that they could avoid engaging Ukrainian forces and that they could avoid any serious amounts of, of urban warfare, right? Um, I, I think that those assumptions are, were wildly uh, uh, off base, and, and I think they realized that after a couple of days now into the war. Uh, they are still committed to try and take the capital. The reason why is there's a clear belief in Russia that the capital is center of gravity and if they can get the Zelensky administration to capitulate, then they can install something else. Um, as far as performance and organization, so there are some there are some problems with the basics that anybody watching this can tell, but also I think a lot of it's really driven by an unworkable concept of operations and you're seeing the Russian military attempt to conduct operations in a way that's simply not set up to do at all. And you're seeing them, basically, you're seeing force employment that is irrational for the Russian military. And in many places, you're not even seeing force employment at all. Just a lot of force sitting on the sidelines. So that's part of the issue. Um, are they going to take the gloves on? They already have been the past several days in outside number of towns. Writ large, I'm not sure because I think part of the operation is constrained you know, by their desire to... Um, to politically in some ways integrate Ukraine, maybe into some union state with Russia. And so that's going to be near impossible to do if you devastate half the place. I mean, uh, Ukraine is a very large country and it's got a sizable population. And even though I don't think Russia has any intention of taking all of Ukraine, even large regions of it are fairly populous. And I have no idea how they would intend to possibly hold on to, to parts of this territory if they engage and sort of forms of unrestricted warfare using overwhelming firepower. So, so what was, 
Go ahead, go ahead, Ward. So you just mentioned that you what Putin doesn't want to do is take over Ukraine. What does he want to do? Does he want to make it into Belarus Jr.? You know, when he stepped off the line of departure, did he think it through? Like we talk about the Weinberger Doctrine, have an end state before you invade in mind. Otherwise, you get in this quagmire that maybe he's already in. But what do you think his intent was? And then we can talk about whether the sanctions are going to work and the domestic situation, etc. So I think he intended to make it into kind of a Belarus, a separate state that's ultimately uh, a, Prussian, a pro-Russian government and one that's strongly aligned with Russia and one where Russia has substantial say over its strategic orientation and also key domestic policies. I think, you know, I, I don't see how that plan is workable. I don't think how it would ever have been workable at the outset. But um, the, the worst in this war is yet ahead. Like this conflict could get very, very ugly and it is becoming very ugly in the last two days. If you've seen the attacks on critical civilian infrastructure, on cities, it's already turned a lot uglier just in the last two days. There are, are other options for Russia. They could very well capture a very substantial amount of Ukrainian territory and partition the state. Right, That could be their plan B or plan C. Uh, given what's happened in Russia politically, right, from U.S. sanctions, which I think, like U.S. and European sanctions altogether, I mean, I do feel they're fairly catastrophic. And that, I think that creates a situation where there's no way he can afford to lose. The political implications for the regime and for political stability of the sanctions we imposed are massive. Uh, I think they by themselves raise real questions about the durability of his regime. But if he also is humiliated and defeated in this war, uh, I think that would be a catastrophic outcome for him. And I suspect that uh, now he's in a place where he can't really afford to lose this fight. So does that mean he's in a place where there aren't any off-roads? I'm not seeing I'm not seeing good off-ramps, I gotta be honest, unless they unless they reconsider in the coming days and find some settlement with uh, Ukrainian leadership. But I feel to see why Zelensky, president of Ukraine, why he would go from a heroic moment of being becoming this, you know, wartime leader. Uh, to somebody who compromises and seen as capitulating to core Russian demands. I'm not sure why you would trade that. Ukraine hasn't lost. Why Why should it? Why yeah, should he's, he's not going to do that, right? So they show up at the border, and oh, by the way, the Russian delegation was very junior. Um, you know, it was the minister of culture or something showed up. Um, and they're both like, okay, I accept your unconditional surrender. Like, what? Okay, we're done here, right? And we'll come back another time. And, and so that is a non-starter. I think the Western world has rallied around Zelensky's posture, went from comic to epic hero. You know, we don't need a ride or I don't need a ride. I need ammunition that that carved that in stone. Uh, so, yeah, he's not he's not going to he's already, you know, willing to be a martyr. Let's just say he's, he's not going into exile. It's not going to happen, um, which I think is is really a, a beautiful uh, sentiment, uh, regardless of how this plays out. And then meanwhile, I think when you say off-ramp, Bill, we also have to take into account what is what is it that keeps Putin's ego intact and prevents him from losing face, never mind what's practical. So, Michael, let's segue into um, all of the world's uh, things that they've done against 
the Russian bank economy, uh, Nord 2 pipeline, all of these sanctions. Uh, are they are they effective? I, I just saw a headline that said that uh, Russians about to have uh, economic bankruptcy and go into collapse. Uh, so how does that play out in the short term and the long, long term? Mm. Yeah, that's a million dollar question right there, right? Who can predict the use of massive economic tools that we've never used on a country of the size that's disintegrating to the global economy? Um, I think the most good way to put it is that a lot of what the United States has done is principally going to turn Russia into something akin to Iran. Okay, it's really financial decoupling from the global financial system. It is going, it is imposing real constraints on Russia's central bank to use the assets and the resource they have to bail out other parts of the economy. It's going to lead to tremendous inflation, huge devaluation of the ruble, which we've already seen. Uh, complete flight of capital and of major investors like, you know, you see BP and Shell. Uh, you're going to see tremendous amount of financial isolation. I don't know where it takes Russia. I think it's economic economically catastrophic, to be honest. I think, I think most Westerners are surprised by how quickly Western nations agreed to impose the heaviest sanctions on Russian banks, on Russia's central bank, which I think is the biggest deal of all. Go away. Go away. Um, and 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 even Swift, although Swift isn't that significant, but even Swift is a bit surprising politically. So yeah, I don't I don't have a great answer about how it stands. By the way, it takes us down a pretty escalatory road, too. Yeah. Like, Sorry, I have dogs wrestling here in the house. That's no, why. Is that what that was? I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what that was. I'm not I'm not hurting any human beings. Um, <laughs> so uh I guess my main question around this is does this compel Putin to take an off-ramp? Is that a demand signal that can eventually cause him to pull out of the country? No, because the sanctions are going to ultimately be tied to him. You see, there's no way anybody in the West is going to forgive him for doing this, right? His only option, his off-ramp, is to probably step down as Russia's leader. I think that's probably his only real option to try to save the country from this. Is look, if Russia, if Russia at this point under him accepts a defeat in Ukraine, the West is going to keep pressing, and Western policy is going to ultimately become regime change. Right? I've already heard plenty of hawks yelling for this. You know, they haven't gotten their way yet, but long story short, they they probably will get to push U.S. policy into very, very, you know, from from active containment towards something like rollback. And I don't see these sanctions. Uh, being lifted from Russia as long as he's in power. I really don't. I'm deeply skeptical of that. I think, you know, for the first time watching Russia in all these decades, I do think there's a prospect of uh, regime change driven by internal elites. There's okay, so how does that go down? That That's a, a great point. And how does that go down uh, domestically? Well, um, as you know, uh, Russia historically has had a real problem with political transition, almost consistently yeah, throughout its history. And internal coup or palace coup, as we like to call it, has been one of one of the um, not particularly uncommon forms of power transition in Russia. So the way it goes down potentially is, you know, that Putin could well get the Nikita Khrushchev retirement package after the Berlin crisis and the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, which is that 
there's a real distinct possibility that other elites, I'm already seeing a fracturing of elites. This is the very beginning, obviously. It's early days. I'm not saying something that can happen tomorrow, but you're already seeing a fracturing of the elite in Russia. They basically realize that this person has made a tremendous gamble in this calculation and he's taken the country down an unsustainable path. Somebody else within the Russian elite will eventually garner potentially the support of internal security services around them, which they would need, and uh, push them out. Now, that future leader, to be clear, probably going to be another authoritarian leader. Somebody who says that, hey, I'm not Vladimir Putin. That person, you know, went mad and overstepped the mark and what have you, and repeal some of his more repressive policies, and then does a makeover outside from externally of the regime in the way it appears, but actually still keeps Russia probably a, some form of personalist authoritarian system. That's a, that's a best guess. I'm completely wildly speculating here, which I'm doing as an analyst, you know. Yeah, so, uh, Michael, there's a couple of uh, folks in the chat who've added questions or comments about uh, uh, support for Putin and, and lack of support for this war back in Russia, right? So 6,000 Russians, uh, some reports uh, say, have been arrested in, in mass protests around the country. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain degree to which the Russian government is good at cracking down on protests, but when it gets to a certain level, um, you know, their ability to, you know, as we used to say at the Naval Academy, they can't fry us all, which meant when you were a midshipman, right, they couldn't, they couldn't punish everybody. So, uh, you know, if the Russians uh, kind of break out and say, hey, this is really not good for us, it's not good for our nation, and, and they unite in the streets uh, behind somebody else or against Putin at, at the very least, at what point, you know, do you see the potential for a tipping point here? And, and what's your read on how the um, the Russian populace actually feels about this war. So the war is deeply unpopular with the Russian public. They have been doing everything they can to keep it hidden and secret. They've framed it as a special Donbass operation. They have framed it that way uh, in order so that the public doesn't understand that they're actually conducting a full-scale invasion of Ukraine with maximum war aims. Um, beyond that, well, They've actually today even closed down some more famous uh, independent liberal outlets like Echo Moskwe and um, and uh, TV Doors and the like. So the repression, the wave of repression is rapidly coming in. They're not even allowing the media to call this a war. They, the media has to frame it as a special operation in their coverage. Uh, what do I think about it? Well, I think the protests are only going to increase. I think we're going to see more protests following this than almost anything else we have in Russia over time. I don't, but the level of repression has really changed tremendously since 2014. It's very difficult for Russians to go out and protest. It's become very clear what will happen to you if you do. And uh, I don't expect the change to be grassroots. But as always, I think it'll be one of the many uh, motivating factors for the elites and how they evaluate the situation. So has, the, the average Russian citizen, to your point of the, the repression has ramped up since, since 2014, and they know what will happen. So again, to the question of the sanctions, is it gas prices? Is it lines? Is it lack of stuff on the shelves like food? At, at what point does life get so bad? Like, you know, World War II in, in Leningrad, you know, kind of a thing where you just, it's not, you know, they, there's no heat in your house and there's no gas in your car 
is that what it's going to take for the people to rise up where they don't the the they're not worried about getting thrown in jail that's like the better option uh in in between that and and toppling the the Putin regime I mean I'm not sure what you mean by rise up like well I guess again we're trying to we're trying to figure out the, the psyche domestically uh we got it it's unpopular but in that same breath you're saying that the Russian population knows that if you protest, you're going to get thrown in, in jail. And so that that's maybe a disincentive for them to, you know, use use their voice. Uh, so the Western world is wondering, as we hear anecdotally, yeah, the Russians don't like this war. At what point does that become something that Putin has to honor and yield to? At what, at what point does that become something that he's going to have to get out of Ukraine? I don't know that it does. And I don't know what that point is. I got to be honest with you. Yeah. So I've, I've, not seen it. I've not seen it. I've not seen a single bit of history in the last 20 years. The Chechen wars weren't popular with anybody in Russia, just to be so. Clear. So riots in the streets, food lines, chaos, mayhem. No, no problem for Putin. Well, it's of course a problem for him, but I don't know, like, like, why, what's the point of wildly speculating what could happen? I don't expect grassroots change. I expect elite-driven change. So there you okay. go, Michael. That's that's the key point, right? Elite-driven change. So we know now that uh, Western airspace has been closed to the oligarchs, you know, flying their Gulfstream G5s out of the country. Uh, you know, you can't get out on Aeroflot to the mm -hmm. west. Uh, bank accounts are frozen, foreign assets are frozen. A lot of those oligarchs have offshored their money into places like, you know, Monaco and Great Britain and, you know, uh, other, um, you know, the Cayman Islands, et cetera. And if that money is frozen and they can't access it. So that's the elite level support that Putin has certainly enjoyed because, you know, the rich have gotten rich under Putin. But, but if they can't access their money, if they can't go where they want, if they don't have what they need and they see is trending badly, right? That's where I think you're saying the, the elites turn on Putin. Yeah, uh, not probably on the way people think they do. But yeah, I think you will start to see fragmentation within the elites. Got and it. the question is, it's, it's not about the elites in general. It's about the right elites. And if the right elites splinter within the system and choose to take on the regime, it will be a very serious decision. But as always, you know, those transitions in Russia and in Russian history are fraught with uncertainty and stability. So when you look at that, I'm going to say, be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah. Russia has a very, very tragic history of these kind of transitions. And the regime you get afterwards isn't always better than the one that collapsed. So yeah. there's always that aspect of it. I just have to be frank about history is highly contingent. As it, as it turns out. So once forces like that are unleashed in a major power, you don't, you can't always predict where they're going to take you. Hey, uh, Mike, let's come back down from the strategic to more of the tactical level. Uh, you know, some of our readers are aware that I, I served as a naval attache in Russia and Moscow in the mid 2000s. At the time, there was a big effort uh, on the part of the uh, the Kremlin and uh, the, the, the Ministry of Defense to professionalize the Russian army, to get away from the over-reliance on conscripts, right? And to, to build a more 
uh, professional military, you know, modeled a, a bit on the West where you had career soldiers, where you didn't have 90% of the, of the military force serving for, you know, 12 to 18 months and then going back home. So to what extent has that happened? And now what are we seeing in Ukraine? Is that, is that professional, is that force that's there, that 150,000, 200,000, are, are they reliant heavily on conscripts or is it a more professionalized force? Sure. Um, no, first, the force is almost entirely contract and officer staff. The bulk of Russian forces are contract. Contract. Yeah. Contract. Not conscript, but contract. Got it. Uh, second, you know, in the U.S., people mistakenly, uh, well, I won't say mistaken, but we, we often conflate the whole professional from with contract, conscript, like in terms of service, which I, I find interesting. I, it, it's a way we like to think about it, but most great power wars were fought by conscript armies, and they were actually very different level armies. So um there are a lot of armies out there that have conscripts and they're pretty professional like israel's for example uh so we, but we we like to sort of talk about it in this way in terms of service are actually to me not the main um uh, not not necessarily the way the best way to divvy that up intellectually but be that with me my my take on this yes yeah, actually primarily contract troops and in my view that's why you're seeing them do make do what they can with a disorganized completely uh, shambolic effort and they're fighting and you find Ukrainians, even though you can see that morale is is fairly low many of them i don't think knew or expected they were going to go into this fight and certainly the military doesn't look prepared for you know a large-scale uh, military operation in ukraine i mean i don't know what they were told in the run-up to this but um the the early level of coordination and, and the way they put it together is absolutely bewildering uh, what else can I add? So yeah, the, the cons I, I'm sure conscripts are there in support roles. The biggest problems you see is definitely in logistics. Um, I don't think they're brought enough logistics for this effort. I don't think they're using forces in a way that enables them to effectively leverage the logistics they have. I also don't think that the Russian military reforms and all successful military experience in the last 20 years, what have you, has ever attempted anything this big, right? in in really in the uh uh post-cold war period right this is their this is them attempting to invade the largest country in europe in an effort that involves thousands upon thousands of troops the end strength deployment around ukraine was probably towards two hundred thousand troops and you know here we go i think we're day six now they're still getting most forces just across into ukrainian territory not into the fight right and i don't i, I, I don't actually think they have the logistics to support Half of it. And yeah, just for context, point. to Michael's point, the, the most troops we ever had in either Iraq or Afghanistan was 130, 140,000 uh, at the height of those wars. So, you know, that I think you make a brilliant point there, Michael. This is unprecedented. And, you know, it's kind of like you, you can do exercises all day long, but until you do it for real, you don't know if it's going to work or not. And, and I think the early returns show that they're they're overextended already you know and there are these viral videos of civilians you know harassing them jeering at them as they go by like go back to russia you out of gas and you know just kind of sitting there stalled uh in the eastern part of the country as they tried to make that initial advance uh but to your point earlier we got to watch getting overly optimistic about what's going to happen so let's let's talk about the ukrainians not the military so much, but the locals. We're seeing footage of them making Molotov cocktails, and we're hearing 
uh, folks under the leadership of Zelensky. And by his example, President Zelensky uh, said, you know, we'll fight till, uh, till we're all gone and the Russians will never take this country. And that kind of resilience and that kind of attitude, it seems like that's, uh, that's got hope. If the conventional military, whether it's MiG-29s or land forces, is going to be overwhelmed, now they're going to have an insurgency or a resistance on their hands. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think probably their biggest challenge, more medium, more near to medium term, will be uh, a Ukrainian resistance within the cities and getting involved in in urban combat. And we obviously have extensive experience with that in our military. And nothing sucks forces in faster than cities. The Russian military, actually, the current military doesn't have great experience with it. You know, it did back in the early 2000s, whatnot. But overall, substantially, the contemporary Russian experience is far less experience with that than than uh, other uh, other types of conflicts and forms of force employment. So uh, that's probably the best long term approach for Ukraine, even though it's very highly destructive. It's a serious political decision. You know, um, regarding the conventional Ukrainian forces. Well, We'll see. Right now, they're yeah, overall they're out in action, though they're doing quite well. But these are mostly skirmishes; these aren't battles. You know, Twitter and social media creates a very distortionary effect of how you perceive a conflict. Right? There are significant Russian losses, but on the whole, you're you're getting more of a one sided take on what's happening in the war. And when you're looking at what's happening with territory and advances, you definitely see a bit of a different picture. And so there's a real threat of Ukrainian forces either being encircled over time or or sort of russian forces pinching away until until they they create unsustainable pockets so i we'll see we'll see what the coming days bring i've seen i've seen tremendous amount of analysis and speculation looking like four or five days into a fight and that's not that's not the best way to do it yeah because i wrote a thread myself saying all right here's what i think i see 96 hours into the war very incomplete early impressions going to stay away from grand conclusions, right? Because a lot of military Twitter has already taken off with big conclusions, including, you know, the biggest one, that, that things have gone great because Russia hasn't conquered Europe's largest country in four days. <laughs> that's not that's not the local takeaway I recommend people make. Yeah. Hey, Michael, uh, we're the Naval Institute and you're with the Center for Naval Analyses, so CNA. Uh, so let's talk Navy a little bit here, right? There's been a lot of reporting about the, the Russian buildup of naval forces in the Black Sea, about amphibious forces coming around from the Northern Fleet up uh, over Murmansk and also from the Baltic Sea Fleet, uh, Kaliningrad, et cetera, including amphibious uh, ships and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Marine sort of equivalent of Marine Corps units in the uh, in the Russian Russian naval infantry they called them right. So what's happening with the Russian Navy and also with their uh, their naval infantry in southern Ukraine? All right. Well, okay. I think the Russian Navy is pretty effectively trying to blockade Ukrainian ports, and they brought in quite a bit of naval infantry, and they brought in a lot of LSTs ahead of this. They had about eleven LSTs that they'd added, and some smaller landing ships from the Caspian Flotilla. They did clearly signaling that they were going to intend to do uh, an amphibious landing somewhere. It wasn't clear where. Then when the war started, there were lots of rumors of Russian amphibious landings. But I haven't seen a single one, and I don't think any real ones took place. There was supposedly one on the fifth night, somewhere outside of Mariupol in the Sea of Azov. Again, claims that it happened, but my best guess is it was something quite small in terms of the actual operation. I think most Russian naval infantry 
uh, that were brought in have not yet conducted uh, any kind of operation. The, the thing about it is this aspect of Russian force employment is in some ways almost classical of, of what you see in big institutionalized military, which is the Russian naval infantry does not need to do any amphibious landings. Okay, I am confident they're going to do one because someone when planning this out said that's the part where the Russian naval infantry needs to go in and do their thing so they can get into the fight. But to be perfectly honest, at this stage of the war, they could safely drive to whatever beach they're going to land at faster from Crimea. Right. So it's these. <laughs> You're going to get these kind of operations. The same thing with Russian airborne, where someone's going to, I definitely see it. Someone looks at the map and says, that's where the airborne does its thing. Let's let them do their mission. Their air assault. Well, it's just a joint arena, right? This is this is why every service has a, you know, a rep. They're like, hey, we need some airborne action here. And those amphibs that went through the Dardanelles Straits, they're not going to just sit out there. They need to execute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it's not it's it's first. It's not a Russian military operation. If the airborne isn't doing something first and the Navy doesn't have a partner and the Naval infantry is not going to sit it out and they're not going to be happy driving their BTR 82As or um, some units have BMP3s uh, all the way there. They're going to want to have a landing that they do as part of it. But um, I, I'm sure we'll see it. Honestly, I'm sure we'll see it, but I, I don't think it's going to be necessarily that, that relevant or decisive. Gotcha. A, a question for you about uh, cyber and you know command and control warfare, if you will. I've been surprised to see the extent to which the Ukrainians still seem to have uh, their command and control networks up, their ability to communicate with the outside world, their ability to get you know, their message out via Twitter and other social media apps, et cetera. Why haven't the Russians taken that down? And do you think it's just a matter of time before they do? Um, okay, so first, it's a great question. I think we've definitely not seen the kind of cyber warfare we people have been expect to see early on this conflict. I actually didn't think that, that we would. First of all, it's much easier to take down those key nodes in a country kinetically, physically, than it is to use cyber warfare. Ukraine actually is pretty resilient to cyber warfare as a country. And I think they didn't go after all these networks because they actually were really staying away from critical civilian infrastructure. And they thought, I think they thought that they really were going to get away with a quick insertion of forces uh and and avoiding having to actually damaging the sort of civilian infrastructure in, in ukrainian way of life uh since they basically originally went after more uh air defense command and control military command and control since then they really have begun strikes on critical infrastructure if you just see you can even see videos today the the main uh, tv tower in kiev has been struck multiple times today so they have shifted gears after the first couple of days and they started coming after critical civilian infrastructure now. So I don't, I've seen disruptions up and down, but most Ukrainians have had internet, they've had communications. Russians have been using electronic warfare all that much in part because their own communications aren't prepared or organized for this effort. And I don't think they want to jam themselves. That's probably why, but I suspect we're going to be seeing a number of these things change in the coming days. One of the questions from our viewers, uh, Marianne Gallagher asks, will the military equipment that's being made available to Ukraine by, uh, by the West and by NATO, Germany famously the, over the last couple of days, will it arrive in time to make a difference? Uh, I don't know. I'm, the big question is, will Russians really begin interdicting it in Western Ukraine? Because they threatened to do it. 
So I suspect that if they start, if they basically start running attacks to interdict ground lines of communications, then the answer is no or not much. But the other big part of it, look, if the center of gravity really is the capital, then those armed shipments down the line will make a difference for an insurgency. But they won't make a difference for this fight, this fight in the phase that it is currently in. I think that's the that's the best I can do. Yeah, yeah. great, great point. Word you're muted. Sorry about that. The uh, the other rumor there is the MiG 29s from Poland. Uh, you know, I'm seeing yes, this is happening from credible news sources, and then I'm seeing um, Tyler Rogaway and, and the folks at the drive saying no, it's not happening, and the numbers don't add up when you say 70 MiG 29s. And as an aviator, I got to think these aren't your FMC MiG 29s, by the way. Um, but uh, the bigger question is, what else can NATO do, in your opinion, uh, in the near term? Because the other 96-hour, uh, you know, surmising that's gone on is, oh, he's not going to be satisfied with Ukraine. He's going to Poland. He's going to Estonia. He's going to Lithuania. Of course, this triggers Article 5. Uh, but is there anything else that NATO could be doing uh, in, in, in your mind? Okay. On MiG-29s, what I've basically seen is that it's not true. The European, different European Union members are not sending those aircraft. Second, it's probably for the best. Uh, who's going to fly them and why? Russian air defense is pretty thick. Ukrainians have had some luck with uh, Bayraktar drone strikes, but I'm going to be honest, I've seen quite a few Ukrainian aircraft shot down. And MiG-29 isn't going to help with anything in this fight at this point. So I don't think it, it makes a difference or it's even useful to try to transfer that um, on completely vulnerable airfields, no less. On supplies... Yeah, like this is, it's just not a practical proposition, and it clearly wasn't coordinated with the with the countries who were supposed to provide MiG-29s in the first place. Because everyone I saw from Poland to Bulgaria said no, they weren't doing that. Um, what makes sense? Logistics makes sense. Logistics. Ukrainians are going to have big problems with that down the line um, to sustain their fight and things you can actually get in there. I don't see this expanding to NATO. I mean, come on, Russia's having a big problem, big trouble just with getting the forces into Ukraine right now with this fight. How's it going to expand to Lithuania? I'm not even seeing that, to be honest. They're, uh, the big, the bigger issue are more kind of follow-on European crises and escalation that can take place resulting from this down the line. And what else NATO can do? Uh, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a little wary of some of the hawkish ideas out there, to be frank about uh, what NATO should do, uh, perceiving a sort of Ukrainian success on the ground, because uh, to, just to be clear, I, I don't think people are seriously considering this, but a no-fly zone is a de facto declaration of war. Like, you just need to understand. like an enforceable no-fly zone is a commitment to a kinetic military engagement with Russian forces, right? Yeah, well, so I, having done Operation Southern Watch and Deny Flight, um, the thing there that we don't have is a UN resolution. And remember that Russia is on the, uh, the has veto power of any UN re resolution. So that's maybe a non-starter, but as you suggest, it wouldn't be an act of war on paper if, if the Russians violate a UN resolution, just like shooting down an Iraqi MiG during Operation Southern Watch was not an act of war. It was complying with a UN resolution. However, the practical realities are that's probably just lit off World War III if an American F-15 or an American F-35 shoots down an SU-27. 
Um, you know, that's the definition of escalatory at this point. And it's just not practical. The other thing that happens there is when we're doing cap stations, combat air patrol stations in Ukraine, we're within the SAM ring of the S-400s that, that ring the western border of Russia, mm-hmm. the border of Ukraine. So let's please stop to talk about no-fly zones, I guess, is the bottom line there, in terms of a, a deterrent or something that's going to be prevent Putin from going to Poland uh, or whatever we're concerned with. Let's let's deal with his major yeah. task of, of figuring out how he's going to get out of Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you put that out. It's not the formality that matters. It's the physical act of, of the proposition that counts, right? And, uh, and, 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 it, and it, it would rapidly escalate. And all the bases people would be flying from would be within range of Russian cruise missiles as well. And Russia is not out of missiles in this fight. It's yeah. using them fairly conservatively and iteratively. Don't think that the Russian uh, PGM arsenal has remotely been spent. And the Russian Air Force has sat on the sidelines for basically this entire war. So so the bulk of their air powers is still there. Well, we, we know how to do no-fly zones, to be clear, right? This is, this is a proceedings topic. Um, no-fly zones, we know how to do soft kill of SAM sites. That's what the growlers are for. But the yeah. one thing that would be the active war is if your SAMs are getting soft killed and your only response is now air-to-air warfare, now you're going to get one of your airplanes shot down. And, and then your next move is to cl- declare war on whatever country it was or NATO uh, in the in the wake of that. And that, that's definitely not a way to take this down a notch. Uh, and, and again, it's not going to stop anything either. You know, um, the ROE would be very complicated, um, but we could do it. it. This is what we did for however many years OSW lasted and Northern Watch as well. Um, we're, we're good at that. And don't forget Libya. We had, we had a very effective no-fly zone over Libya. Uh, during the the end of the Gaddafi era. Um, So we know how to do those, Mm -hmm. but it's just not practical. And I don't think we're going to have a UN resolution because you need that and you need local air superiority to do it. And we don't have any of either of those things at this point. Yeah. Hey, we're we're running out of time, uh, Michael, but one, one last question because it's, it's come up a lot in the news the last 24 hours or so was that Putin put the national uh, strategic arsenal of the of the, of the Russians uh, on a higher level of alert. So this is the nuclear forces. This is ICBM and SLBM forces on a higher level of alert. And I, I heard uh, from my boss actually uh, mentioned uh, that he read a, a piece saying that Putin had, was outside and, and senior Russian leadership was outside of Moscow had gone to the Urals. Uh, so what what are you hearing about Russian nuclear forces, strategic forces? You know, well, I, he ordered that live, but I I have not heard a change in Russian nuclear force posture confirmed at all. And maybe certain technical changes within Russian NC3. I've actually not seen a confirmation of that because the way he framed it, it could have meant absolutely anything, right? From just higher level readiness or some changes in, in terms of NC3 system to things that are very easy, things that are observed through national means of intelligence and reconnaissance, right? You know the host of things it could mean, right? Everything from 12 Google going to start pulling warheads out of storage and delivering them to our means of delivery, our base, to ballistic missile submarines departing, to greater strategic bomber patrols, all those things, uh, and, and a host of things that we might not be able to, to you know, to observe easily as well. So obviously, it's my own view. Sitting in my office here in Alexandria, Virginia, 
I don't know, but based on everything I've seen and heard, there haven't been tremendous changes in Russian nuclear posture. That is nuclear signaling, right? That's the early stage of nuclear signaling and kind of uh, nuclear threats. Well, that is reassuring to me. So thanks for, for giving us that. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you, Michael, for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I uh, really appreciate your insights, uh, particularly the fact that, uh, you know, in your in your view, the, the Russians really haven't thrown everything into this yet, and they're just now kind of getting the forces that were staged along the border, across the border, into Ukraine. So we, we can, uh, I take away from this conversation, we can expect ex escalation from the Russians uh, over the next, you know, 48 to 96 hours. So we, we haven't really seen what they can throw at the Ukrainians uh, quite yet. So uh, disturbing news, uh, but great to have your insights uh, as always. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, uh, on your program. Well, you hopefully we can get you back maybe uh, early next week or towards the end of this week. Great to have you back again. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Great to see our online audience, our live audience uh, growing with these. We'll be back again uh, at the latest. We'll be back again on Friday, 11 o'clock Eastern time. We'll have Bridge Colby, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for, for Strategy, who's written a book called The Strategy of Denial, uh, which is more focused on, on China, but certainly has uh, relativity to uh, events going on with Russia and the Ukraine. So look forward to that conversation. Again, Bridge Colby, this Friday, 11 o'clock Eastern time uh, on, the, uh, on the Proceedings Podcast. Until then, uh, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you soon. And we'll remind you that this live stream is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. For more, go to usni.org slash join. Thanks.